If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between, offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthierhappenstogether. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Reveal. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Cathedrals have been a long-standing fixture of English cities, surviving some of the most turbulent periods of religious and social change. But what can they reveal about our past? In today's episode, Nicholas Orme speaks to Emily Briffitt about the long and illustrious history of the cathedral, tracing their role in society from the early Middle Ages to the modern day. Today we are going to be discussing the history of England's cathedrals, So I think the best place to start would be, what does the word cathedral actually mean? Well, the word cathedral comes from a Latin word, cathedra, which means a chair. And uh, the chair was the bishop's chair. And uh, he sat in the cathedral as the main person there. And um, a cathedral is a bishop's church, or the bishop's church, in fact, So why do we actually have cathedrals? Why were they built? Why not just build a smaller church, say? Well, the church, ever since early times, has been organised in dioceses. And the word diocese was originally a Roman administrative unit. The church then adopted it for the area of land that the bishop runs and all the churches in it. And the cathedral church was the chief church of the diocese. It was the one in which the bishop had his seat and it formed the model for all the others because it was the best resourced. Uh, It was the closest to how a, a church ought to run and then all the others could follow it. Obviously, they were smaller, they had fewer resources, but that was the best way of running a church. Were there different types of cathedral? There's basically one kind of cathedral, which is a church that's run by a group of clergy. And that is different from a parish church, which is usually run by one clergy person. During the Anglo-Saxon period, the sort of clergy that you got in running cathedrals diverged. 
and you had monks on the one hand, and you had what we call canons or secular clergy on the other hand. Now, the difference between these two sorts of clergy is that monks live in a community. They share uh, a dormitory, they share a refectory, they have um, administrative institutional buildings. Canons, on the other hand, lived individually. They each had a house. And many cathedrals still have the appearance round them of a village, don't they, with a green and individual houses. Back in Anglo-Saxon times, they were often married as well. And they had children and they even passed on their posts to their children. When you get into the 1100s, the church didn't like that and, and suppressed it. And then in 1540, Henry VIII dissolves the monasteries. What's going to happen to the cathedrals? He could actually have abolished all the cathedrals. They did in Germany. They, they thought they were surplus to requirements. But England was lucky, if you take that view, because Henry liked cathedrals. And when in 1540 somebody presumably Thomas Cromwell, said to him, look, sir, the way things are going, all the cathedrals are going to disappear. And Henry said, no, we're not going to do that. Henry disliked administrative business. He left it to other people in as far as he could. But Henry actually sat down and wrote an act of parliament, quite a short one, saying all cathedrals are to be preserved. And the ones which had monks in were simply turned into the other sort of cathedrals with canons. In fact, in, many, in some cases, the monks became canons. They were kept on, but they now had individual houses and they were to live like everybody else. Bringing us right back to the beginning of this story, could you perhaps tell us when England's first cathedral was built? Well, there must have been cathedrals in Rome and Britain in the, in the last century of it, in the 300s. And, and we know there were bishops in London and Lincoln and York, and they must have had cathedrals. But when Roman rule collapsed in England in the 400s, uh, the towns disappeared and the cathedrals disappeared. So there's nothing coming through from Roman Britain. So we have to wait a bit longer until 597 when St Augustine is sent from Rome to reintroduce Christianity to England. And uh, he then establishes the first new cathedral at Canterbury in 597. Very soon afterwards, cathedrals in Rochester and London, and then they gradually spread out over the rest of the country. But um, cathedrals have gone on being founded in England right up until about the 1920s. Is there a history to cathedral building? Were more built at one time than another, perhaps? There have been periods of building and there's been periods of inactivity. The Anglo-Saxons, as I've just said, built the first cathedrals. They're fairly small buildings to start with, but... As cathedrals get better endowed with resources, they acquire property, they acquire landed estates, and it becomes possible for them to be rebuilt in a, on a larger scale. And they're getting larger, 
by the end of the Anglo-Saxon period, by the 11th century. Then the Normans come in, and the Normans approve of cathedrals. They have them in Normandy. They think the English ones are rather too small, so they start a rebuilding programme in the 1100s, and they increase the size again. And then you get further development later on. You get rebuildings in the 13th century. Salisbury, the great example of a new cathedral being uh, rebuilt on a very large scale in the 13th century. You get others like Exeter at the end of the um, 13th century being built on a larger scale. So they're all going larger and larger and larger. They're tending to tail off after the Black Death for in the 1349 for all sorts of reasons because uh, money is tighter and the population is smaller. There aren't so many clergy. Um, but they're building on little additions, cloisters and chapels right up to the early 16th century. Then you get the Reformation. The church loses a lot of property and also public opinion begins to turn against cathedrals. A lot of people think they're superfluous uh, or they're vestiges of Catholicism, which we ought not to have. And so in the reigns of Elizabeth I, James I, Charles I, uh, nothing much happens to cathedrals at all. Then you get the Commonwealth, uh, when cathedrals are actually all closed or turned into parish churches. Then you've got one cathedral rebuilding in the 1660s, and that's St Paul's. But that's because it got burnt down. And the rebound when Charles II became king against the Puritans and, and the, the Commonwealth people, um, meant that there was a groundswell of opinion to say we should have a nice new cathedral in London. And then in the 19th century, when the country becomes much more prosperous because of the Industrial Revolution, you get the building of new cathedrals. First of all, it starts with the Catholics, because in the 1830s, they re-established their own system of bishops and cathedrals. The Church of England doesn't have so much money in the 19th century as it had had in the Middle Ages. So the number of new cathedrals built is rather small. When you um, make a church into a cathedral um, in the 19th, 20th centuries, you look for the most promising big parish church in the diocese, and you use that, and you might extend it a little bit. There have only been four new-built Church of England cathedrals since the Victorians, uh, beginning with Truro, then uh, Liverpool, then Guildford, and finally Coventry, which had to be rebuilt because it had been uh, damaged in the Second World War. And the Catholics have also built cathedrals in the 20th century, most notably uh, Liverpool, of course. Um, I don't see any new cathedrals being built now. I mean, unless by some terrible chance, you know, one got ruined or burnt in some way. So I think they will stay as they are with very minor adjustments.
Why were they built where they were? Was there a reason for this? That's interesting. When Pope Gregory the Great sent Augustine to England in 597, he assumed that England was still Roman Britain, and that it had Roman towns. So he said to Augustine, you must establish two archbishops and a number of bishops. And one archbishop must be in London and the other in York, because that they had been the two great cities of Roman Britain. Um, now, Augustine found that, in fact, the situation on the ground was different. Uh, he never got anywhere near York. The nearest he got was London, but his main base was in Canterbury, and London wasn't entirely under his or his uh, local king's control. So he established himself at Canterbury, and he's been there ever since. The other cathedrals they established tended to be in old Roman cities. They were all ruined, these cities, by the year 600, but somehow they felt that was the right place to put the cathedral. The return of Christianity to England wasn't just the return of the Christian religion, it was the return of Roman civilization. England was going to be linked in again with the the cultural Roman world. So the right place to put the cathedrals is in the old cities. And actually this was helpful in the revival of these cities. Once you had a big church there, and if it was wealthy, it tended to attract population, it tended to attract trade. So many of our cathedrals are in old Roman cities like Winchester, Worcester, Exeter, York. I'd like to move on slightly to talk a little bit about the people involved with running a cathedral. So who actually oversaw the running of a cathedral? Well, technically, the bishop oversaw the running of the cathedral. And back in Anglo-Saxon times, the, the bishop is quite th often there, I think. And the clergy who run the cathedral are the bishop's own staff of clergy. But in the course of time, there comes to be a distinction between the bishop's staff who actually stay with him and the clergy whom you need to run the cathedral. And a division begins to open up. And when you, by the time you get to the 1100s, there can actually be some animosity between the bishop and the cathedral clergy. Uh, the cathedral clergy are used to running the place themselves. They let the bishop in at the beginning of his tenure. He comes in and he's solemnly put onto his seat or throne. And they're quite willing to have him in when he's dead and have his funeral. But the less they see of him in between those two events, the better. And so already, by the, particularly by the 1200s, you're actually getting nasty disputes between cathedral clergy and their bishops. This has tended to subside in modern times, but as recently as about the 1980s, the Bishop of Lincoln was having difficulties with his cathedral clergy, uh, and it was a result of that that the rules were all changed, which makes it now very much more difficult for cathedral clergy and a bishop to fall out You've mentioned a little bit about the clergy there, but what other roles were there in a cathedral? Who else might we expect to meet? Cathedrals have often been compared to great 
ocean liners or cruise ship. They're run by a body of canons or monks, and they are very much the officer class. They decide what goes on, but they don't do all the work. They don't do all the services. They don't do administrative tasks. You then need another working body of people who are less important, less well-paid, who don't have uh, power of authority to to make changes. Um, In a cathedral of canons, they're called vicar's choral or minor canons, and in monastic cathedrals, they have chantry priests. So there could be quite a lot of of people in a cathedral um, in in terms of running it. They were probably 80 or 90 um, in the Middle Ages, which is quite a lot when institutions are much smaller than they are nowadays. Obviously, cathedrals were houses of God, houses of religion. How was religious devotion displayed within a cathedral? Well, the basic task of a cathedral is to praise God. And that is done every day. And it's done on behalf of the whole of the rest of humanity. And so you have a series of services of praise and prayer to God. And in medieval times, up up to the 1540s, it's quite a complicated liturgy. There are eight services. They begin at midnight and they end in the late afternoon or early evening. Now, monks sometimes did that, but the cathedrals of canons found that knocking off from what else they were doing every few hours didn't really work. And so the services were gathered into groups. You had services in the night. The canons probably wouldn't turn out for those. That, that could be left to the, the lesser folk. Then services from dawn up to about nine or ten. And then services in the middle of the afternoon at about three before it got dark. When the Reformation came, the number of services was cut down. The midnight services were abolished. And you then had two services, basically, a morning service called Matins and an afternoon service called Evensong, happening at about nine and three, respectively. Still to come on the History Extra podcast... Cathedrals are very much a record of our history, but you've got all periods of English history represented. The, the, the building itself comes through from Saxon or Norman or later time. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. 
what else did cathedrals do? What was their role in society? Well, they're they're very important centres of music, of course, because music is used to beautify the worship. In the Middle Ages, it's plain song, that is to say, um, music which is sung by the singers in unison. And then, towards the end of the Middle Ages, particularly in the 15th century, polyphony becomes very popular in England, and that is um, music that is sung in harmony. And that is when the importance of boys in cathedrals begins. Um, Up until that time, if you find boys around a cathedral, they're really learning the task for becoming adult clergy. They're helping out with minor tasks. But as soon as you have polyphony, you need a range of voices. And the fact that boys have treble voices gives you an extra um, uh, resource for your harmony. So the idea of the boy chorister that we now have is very much dates from the 15th century, not from the very beginning of cathedrals. And then since the 1990s, when Salisbury introduced girl choristers, that has spread to nearly every cathedral now. They provide education. Once they got boy choristers, they had to teach them how to sing. Henry VIII thought it would be a good idea for cathedrals to look after the elderly and the the poor, Uh, particularly he had in mind poor soldiers. So he ordered them to have alms folk attached to them. And they did down to the 19th century, but it then withered away because there were other ways by that time of um, supporting the elderly. Uh, Then cathedrals acquire libraries. These are not originally public libraries. They're there for the um, use of the canons, particularly. Even the lesser uh, clergy are not necessarily allowed to use them. So it's very much music, education and books, um, access to knowledge. How has the cathedral's role changed over time? It it has changed in, in various ways. I think in the Middle Ages, cathedrals are, um, well, they're the, they are the best exposition of the Christian religion. What cathedrals do is widely copied in the parish churches. And in fact, it becomes the norm for cathedrals in the north of England to do what York Minster does, and cathedrals in the south of England to do what Salisbury Cathedral does. So in the Middle Ages, you can say that cathedrals were were the, the great models for worship. When you get to the Reformation, I think the role of cathedrals changes somewhat. One of the things that interested me when I studied this subject is that the word cathedral only comes into use in the 1570s, which is pretty amazing. They've been there for a a thousand years. And in fact, the, the word cathedral has been used for less than half of their history. Why was that? Because in the Middle Ages, There were lots of other great churches in England, as well as cathedrals. There were the great monasteries, Westminster, St Albans, Glastonbury, and so on. The cathedrals didn't stand out. When Henry VIII 
dissolve the monasteries, suddenly the cathedrals were left there as giants in a world where there were otherwise only pygmy parish churches. But after the um, Reformation, the cathedrals become increasingly part of what you might call the, the governing apparatus of England. England becomes a Protestant nation, so Catholicism is not permitted. And then after the Civil War period, when the nonconformist churches begin to emerge, the um, Congregationalists and Baptists and Quakers and so on, they're not part of the establishment as either. So the, the cathedrals in their cities become the kind of embodiment of the Protestant British state. When you get to Victorian times, there are huge changes made to British institutions and British life. And in the 1820s and 30s, many things get reformed. Parliament, local government, the judicial system, and cathedrals as well. Cathedrals can no longer expect to be representing the whole of the population or the whole of the governing order, because Catholics and nonconformists can now become members of, uh, members of Parliament and, and so on. So they then have to acquire some kind of new purpose in life, which I suppose goes back to being more religious again. Um, and in modern times has become more cultural, I think. Uh, that is something that actually you can trace back to the beginning of the 18th century. In the 1710s, the three cathedrals of Gloucester, Worcester and Hereford began to hold uh, an alternating festival, the Three Choirs Festival, which happens in one of these cathedrals every year, a music festival. You then see other music festivals starting up later in the 18th century, but particularly taking off in the 19th. And cathedrals become, in Victorian England, what they've never been before, which is concert halls. You start by staging something that's very definitely religious, like Messiah by Handel, but you gradually, uh, you fan out from that. But it's very slow to happen, and there's a famous occasion when Beethoven's Mass was done in a cathedral. They didn't dare call it a Mass. They called it uh, Beethoven's Service, I think. But when people realised they were actually listening to a setting of the Latin Mass, people walked out. So it took quite some time for the this novel idea that you could go to a cultural event in a cathedral to take hold. The cathedral itself as a concept has this massive, expansive history. But what do you think cathedrals reveal to us about our history? Cathedrals are very much a record of our history. And I always feel when I go to one of the ancient ones, that you've got all the periods of English history represented. The, the, the building itself comes through from Saxon or Norman or later times. You've then got a whole series of monuments, haven't you, of bishops and knights and uh, dignitaries, 
So then you've got the traces of the Reformation in cathedrals. If you go to Gloucester or Worcester or Canterbury, as soon as you get out of the cathedral itself, you'll be in the remains of the monastic buildings, the cloisters and the uh, ancillary buildings. They may be ruined uh, in part. Uh, in, in Canterbury's still got most of them, in fact. So you've got the mark of the Reformation there. You've got the mark of the 18th century, I think, in these these tablet tombs that you get uh, you get in uh, in uh, cathedrals. All these wall tablets to clergy, merchants, gentry, laying out all their virtues, uh, how benevolent they were, how caring for the poor, how hospitable. Um, they were free of all traces of enthusiasm, which meant, of course, being Methodist or um, that kind of thing. Um, so you can you can be in a cathedral and feel very 18th century. And then... There are tremendous traces of the 19th century because some cathedrals are 19th century, like, say, um, Birmingham's Catholic Cathedral and, and Westminster Cathedral and Truro and, uh, and Liverpool. And the cathedral will have been extensively restored in the 19th century because one of the things that the Victorians did was to rescue cathedrals from the comparative neglect that they had fallen into and embark on big programs of restoration. The great name being, of course, um, Sir Gilbert Scott, who managed to um, restore an enormous number of, of cathedrals. Restoring meant um, to Victorians very often putting new things in instead of the old. They, they, they didn't have modern idea of conservation. They thought they were the next phase on just as medieval people had rebuilt cathedrals and Wren had rebuilt a cathedral. Uh, why shouldn't they re rebuild a cathedral? But that gets overtaken at the end of the 19th century by conservation ideas. People like William Morris insist that you mustn't change medieval buildings. You must leave them uh, as they are and, and conserve them carefully. Um, so th they're Victorian. They're also 20th century as well. Um, when you go into a, into a modern cathedral, there will be all sorts of things that remind you of um, the coming of democracy, the, the putting in of, of chairs or pews, where everybody gets exactly the same sort of seat. You wouldn't have had that back in, in the further past. Uh, privileged people had privileged seats. Either they had bigger ones or they were up the front. The idea of a, a cathedral that is completely uniform in its seating is a reflection of the growth of democracy in the 20th century. And then another aspect of what you might call democracy is the wish to bring religion closer to ordinary people. Um, if you imagine a Victorian service, and certainly in previous areas, the laity who go are very much an audience, and the service is done by clergy, often at a considerable distance from the congregation. And what has happened in the 20th century 
is the feeling that the service ought to be much more valuing and inclusive of everybody there. So you bring the altar of the church away from the far east end where it used to be, and you put it at the east end of the nave, which is where most people are sitting. The clergy stand on the other side of it facing the people rather than with their backs to the people facing God, which is what they'd always done before. And you then get rotors by which members of the congregation read lessons or or even lead prayers. So you can be in a cathedral and think, well, yes, that, all that is very 20th century. And if you're sufficiently sensitive, if it's an ancient cathedral, you can think yourself into any historic period. How have cathedrals coped throughout perhaps more troubling periods? I see five great periods of challenges that cathedrals have gone through. The first was the fall of the Roman Empire. There were already cathedrals, but everything so collapsed in the 400s that the cathedrals that existed then did not survive. The next great challenges, I think, were the Vikings, because they caused a lot of havoc in England in the 800s and 900s. Oddly enough, the the Vikings were not particularly hostile to cathedrals or even to Christianity. I think they were not above um, grabbing treasures, um, and churches had treasures. But um, the interesting thing about the Vikings is that, you know, they sacked uh, the cathedral at Lindisfarne famously in the 790s, the first Viking attack on England. But actually, the cathedral didn't leave Lindisfarne for many years. And when it eventually left, it didn't move to... Uh, the the most remote area from the Vikings. It actually moved into the Viking area. And there was clearly much more of a symbiosis between um, cathedrals and Vikings than you might think. The next challenge is the Reformation. And as I've suggested to you, there wasn't really any reason why you needed to keep cathedrals. You see, you could have simply dissolve them, and the king should have seized the property. He could have made himself even richer than he was. But there was a problem that cathedrals alone could solve. There were an awful lot of clergy who were younger sons of noblemen and gentlemen who wanted uh, a kind of easy position in life. And cathedral canonries were the obvious thing for them. You see, if they went into a parish, they'd be stuck out in the sticks somewhere, ministering to people far below them in social rank. If they had a canonry, it was quite well paid. It had almost no duties because there was always a a secondary dog's body who would do your duties for you. You would live in the cathedral city in... Uh, a reasonably civilised society with similar people. And so cathedral canonries 
allowed for this need in the higher reaches of society for younger sons. And Henry, I think, perceived this. And of course, by turning the monastic cathedrals into canon cathedrals, he actually doubled the number of posts that you had for these sort of people. So despite all the um, animosity about cathedrals, the crown stuck by the cathedrals and said, no, no, we're going to keep them. But then, of course, the crown loses power. And so the cathedral opponents in the 1640s and 50s are on top. And so they they disband all the cathedral chapters of of canons. And... um, some of the cathedrals fall into into a semi-ruinous state. Those that are still in use are um, turned into parish churches, effectively. But the Commonwealth people made one big mistake. Thomas Cromwell, when the monasteries were dissolved, took the roofs off. As soon as you take the roof off a monastic church, the place begins to deteriorate and you simply can't put the monks back. This is what Mary Tudor found even only a few years later. Uh, It it was getting too difficult. The Puritans in the 1650s didn't take the roofs off. And so when Charles II came back in 1660, it wasn't too difficult to re-establish the cathedrals. Um, the cathedrals just got swept back on the wave of, isn't it wonderful to have a king again? Uh, yeah, isn't it wonderful to have a church again? Yeah, we'll put the cathedrals back again. Uh, and nobody opposed that. So that is how they survive that challenge. And the final challenge is the Victorian one. Because again, in the 1830s, there's very considerable animosity towards cathedrals. You see, you've got all these uh, gentry, canons, who are doing nothing. And some of the cathedrals were offensively rich. Durham had coal mines on its estates. And it was incredibly rich. And the canons were obscenely paid. And reformers were saying, look, we've got to take this away. They're not doing anything with the money. They're just spending it. Um, There are all these new industrial towns without churches, which is where the money needs to be. Uh, Why don't we close the churches altogether, which some people suggested. The more moderate view was we'll actually top slice their income. So In 1840, there is an Act of Parliament which prunes the cathedrals of their resources very, very considerably. They survive as institutions, but they survive on a very, very different basis. The uh, Church Commissioners is established as a body. They take over most of the revenues of the cathedrals. They then start paying clergy to be um, running new churches in industrial towns. The cathedrals are left with four canons to run them. They're not left with any money to finance the maintenance of the buildings. 
Nobody in the 1840s thought that was necessary. They couldn't conceive of our present understanding that you've got to actually have people working on the cathedral building all the time, patching it up. But every cathedral now has to find other means of raising revenue. And that is done, of course, by encouraging tourism, by opening um, restaurants, by holding festivals, by having organisations of friends. So cathedrals survived the Victorians, but they were put on a a totally different footing uh, than they had been before. My final question to you would be, do we see any constant themes that run throughout the history of cathedrals? Well, it's change. Um, I think people looking back into the past tend to assume that things are always the same as they have been, and they certainly aren't. And cathedrals have had to to change every generation, every century. And in the Middle Ages, I suppose the changes are all going up as far as they're concerned. Um, They are getting steadily richer in terms of, of their lands and endowments. And so they can go on increasing their magnificence making their services more and more elaborate. And then when you get into the 16th century, they start to have to bow to national changes. The Reformation is a big national change. It goes along with uh, a lot of secularisation. Cathedrals, as I've said, had to go through a period of unpopularity after the Reformation. They had to cope with with the Civil War and so on. In the 18th century, it's their respectable period. They're part of the august apparatus of the state church. They have their role there. In the 19th century, um, they have to find new roles for themselves. Some of these roles are imposed on them. Others they, they discover for themselves. I mean, many cathedrals in the 19th century, when their cities became more industrial, they found they had a, a large, poor uh, population on their doorstep. And to be fair to them, they wanted to do their bit to maintain Christianity they were uneasily aware that people were becoming divorced from Christianity. So in the Victorian period, they start to introduce congregational services in the on Sunday evenings. Very little to do in a Victorian town on a Sunday evening. Pubs are probably shut. There are no entertainments. Going to a, a cathedral service is an alternative to sitting at home when you've had to let the fire go out to save fuel. So cathedrals are, are, are always partly adapting because they're made to. They tend to be rather conservative institutions. But to be fair to them, their their members do actually look for opportunities, social and religious opportunities, in society, and and do try to reach out to them, and that happened has happened again in the twentieth century, and there have been all sorts of initiatives to link cathedrals with local society. So, the constant is change. That was Nicholas Orme. 
Emeritus Professor in Medieval History at the University of Kent. Nicholas is also the author of The History of England's Cathedrals. He appeared on the podcast last year to speak to us about the church in medieval England, and you can find that by searching for The Church in your podcast feeds. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Brittany Collie. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.